Good evening and uh, welcome to Romero House. Thanks very much for coming. My name is Phil McCarthy. I'm the Chief Executive of Caritas Social Action Network, which is one of the six organisations involved in the um, Centre for Catholic Social Thought and Practice. The other ones are, as you can see from the screen, those are our, those are our logos. You might, might notice that the uh, Caritas Social Action one now is no longer CSAM, but it's Caritas Social Action. Uh, the UK may have brexited, but our new logo is in line with Caritas Europa and uh, Caritas Internationalis, so we're not, we're not brexiting from the Universal Church. Um, just a brief word about the centre. I'm sure most of you know what the centre is, but just to say it brings together these six institutions in a collaboration. Um, it's intended to bring together like-minded groups to share perspectives, to enrich uh, their understanding of Catholic social teaching, and hopefully to enrich the wider church and society. So my job tonight is simply to introduce Dr. Mark Hayes. We're very pleased to have him with us. Thank you for coming to speak to us tonight. Uh, Mark is the St. Hilda's Reader Emeritus in Catholic Social Thought and Practice at the Centre for Catholic Studies, the University of Durham. He's formerly a Fellow and Director of Studies and Economics at Robinson College, Cambridge, and he was the Principal Founder of Shared Interest, the Credit Cooperative Financing Fair Trade, and an Investment Manager with 3i. So you're very welcome, Mark. Thank you for coming tonight. I'll hand over. Right. Well, I'm most grateful to the Centre for Catholic Social Thought and Practice and for the sponsors of this event uh, for the invitation to come and talk to you tonight. And indeed, I'm very grateful to you for coming out on this cold and wet and dark night. Um, I hope you like this first slide in honour of my patron, St. Hilda, together with the words of wisdom attributed to her. I pray she's with me now as I attempt to speak truth unto power, as she did. What we're now calling the Durham Company Law Project emerged from the work of Clifford Longley, the of the tablet, uh, and a long-standing interest in the subject on the part of myself and Jeff Moore at Durham University. We were glad to be supported in this by Nick Deeming of the Blueprint for Better Business, Morris Glassman in his personal capacity, and uh, Anne Lindsay here at CAFOD. We started work on this project about a year ago, well before the Brexit vote, and Theresa May's speech in July when she raised the possibility of worker and consumer directors. The timing's been fortunate in that we had already formulated a position and so we were ready to submit evidence to the select committee that's currently sitting on corporate governance. So this is a live issue um, and tonight I'm going to try and set out the thinking that the group produced in June for you. You're very brave. This is not going to be light entertainment. It's company law. Uh, but I will try and keep you awake. <coughs> Most people, if you, if you ask them what is the purpose of a company, will say to make money, of course. Yet as King Midas and Ebenezer Scrooge found, the unalloyed desire for money leads only to despair. As Keynes put it, 
the love of money as an end in itself is a somewhat disgusting morbidity. One of those semi-criminal, semi-pathological propensities which one hands over with a shudder to the specialists in mental disease. I quote, A healthy attitude towards money recognises that it's always a symbol of a deeper purpose and only a means to an end. Another distinguished economist, John Kay, illustrates the point very well by comparing the mission statements of ICI in 1987 and 1994. The earlier one reads, ICI aims to be the world's leading chemical company, serving customers internationally through the innovative and responsible application of chemistry and related science. Through the achievement of our aim, we will enhance the wealth and well-being of our shareholders, employees, customers and communities which we serve and in which we operate. By 1994, this became our objective is to maximise value for our shareholders by focusing on businesses where we have market leadership, a technological edge and a world competitive cost base. And Kay argues that this change in corporate purpose explains what happened to ICR, which after 80 years of industrial leadership and innovation was broken up and its various business enterprises sold off. In 1987, its purpose was the responsible application of chemistry to serve the needs of a variety of stakeholders. By 1994, its purpose was to maximise shareholder value, to make as much money as possible for its shareholders. When Tony Blair came to power in 1997, his government commissioned a review of company law, which was the last time there was serious debate about the fundamentals of corporate governance before our present Prime Minister came to power although I think we've got to go back to the 1978 Bullock Report to find any mention of worker directors. Despite raising high hopes, the Blair Review merely consolidated and entrenched the concept of shareholder value as the purpose of corporate enterprise in the current Companies Act 2006. Now, many scholars of law and economics regarded this act as the end of history in company law. The modern listed PLC is simply the most efficient way to govern large-scale business. This view is intimately linked with the concepts of financial liberalisation and <coughs> efficient markets until Nemesis visited her wrath upon us once again in 2008. Now, in response to the crash, a number of initiatives have again been working on the question of corporate purpose. As well as John Kay's review of the workings of the stock market, 
These projects include the purpose of the corporation project, the purposeful company, and tomorrow's company. And the latter two continue the dedicated work of Will Hutton and George Goider over several decades, going back to the 60s. There is also a blueprint for better business, which was originally an initiative of Cardinal Nichols in response to requests from leaders of major companies. There's a growing consensus that something must be done and a variety of proposals. I'm going to argue tonight that to address the problem successfully, we need to delve deep into the very nature of the company. I'm going to show you how the insights into the human condition expressed in Catholic social thought illuminate the problem. I'm going to argue that we need to recognise that workers enjoy a natural right of membership of the company that employs them, as natural and inalienable as their right to own their own bodies. It's this membership that provides legitimacy for participation in governance. Worker membership is a necessary but not sufficient condition for directors to pursue a corporate purpose beyond shareholder value. But necessary, yes, but not sufficient. Clearly, culture and values have a great part to play. But I'm also going to argue that wider purpose will not be sustainable without some transfer of sovereignty from shareholders to directors and workers. The city won't like that, but the economic regeneration of the country depends upon it. So people forget that the company is a creation of the state, not a product of the free market. For many decades, even centuries, the company was regarded as an infringement of liberty, an interference with private enterprise, a charter for monopolists, a recipe for speculative excess and ultimate ruin. The monthly review of September 18, 1826 thundered, the age of companies is past. The application of capital in masses to some splendid object beyond the reach of individual enterprise will always distinguish Britain for as long as we remain a powerful commercial people. But the proper occasions for such associations are comparatively rare, and the principle degenerates into a pestilential abuse when it is applied to an ignorant and impertinent interference with the smaller details of trade, endeavouring to crush the humbler industry of individuals by the overwhelming power of capital alone. The attempt could not succeed, for capital is only an instrument of success in its union with personal talent, industry and integrity. We therefore rejoice in the extermination of the great shoal of these monstrous abortions begotten by fraud upon credulity. There had just been a lot of failures.
The Board of Trade in 1834 argued that facilities should not be afforded to joint stock partnerships which may interfere with private enterprise unless the objects of such companies are of a nature fully to justify such interference upon the ground of general public advantage. This is nearly two centuries ago. The critical years in the development of company law were between 1844 and 1862 under Gladstone and Lowe. A company could now be created by filling in a form and no longer depended on influence at court or in Parliament. And Professor Paddy Ireland has identified a critical change between 1856 and 1862. Before 1862, a company was understood in law as an association, a form of partnership which could act with one voice, own property, sue and be sued under a single name. And this reflected its origins in the monasteries and Oxbridge colleges, where it was in the public interest that the institution continued down the generations while its members and officers came and went especially as, at least in theory, no, in law, inheritance from clerics was not an option. But from 1862, things changed. A group of people no longer formed themselves into a company, rather they formed a company. The company was now a thing, a person in its own right, Frankenstein's dream. The Catholic Church seems to have played no part in these debates. I guess the reasons are obvious, although I'm no church historian. In the British Isles, the church was busy rebuilding itself after emancipation. On the continent, the Code Napoleon survived its author and company law developed wholly independently of the church. However, this period coincided with mass industrialisation and the move led by Britain from feudal and craft organisation to wage labour. Socialism emerged as a powerful political force and it gained intellectual authority from the analysis of Karl Marx. 1848, the year of revolutions, saw the publication of the Communist Manifesto and also the preaching of a series of sermons by a young German priest, Wilhelm von Kettler. And these in turn laid the foundations for Pope Leo XIII's 1891 encyclical on revolution, Rerum Novarum. Yet Rerum Novarum still speaks of masters and servants and associations, and the modern company, the thing, does not figure in it. The church understands the problems of capitalism as part of the question of human work. 
St. John Paul II set out his thinking on the anniversaries of Rerum Novarum in his encyclicals on human work in 1981, Laborem Exercens, and on the centenary of Rerum Novarum in 1991, Centesimus Annus. I warn you, this is difficult stuff, but let's take a deep breath and dive in. At the core of John Paul's teaching is the concept of the dignity of human work. He develops this by making a distinction between the subjective and the objective aspects of work, or character of work. A human person is always the subject, the actor or active agent in any form of work, whatever the objective form that work may take, which might be an independent artisan or farmer, or it could be a scientist working in a university. Now, while technological progress has radically changed the objective forms of work over the last few centuries, its subjective character is permanent. Furthermore, large-scale production involves a community of persons acting together so that the individual's work cannot be separated from their participation in that community. Although the emphasis on labour is similar to Marxist analysis, the church rejects the inevitability of class struggle while acknowledging the reality of real conflict between the interests of labour and capital. There's agreement that wage labour also creates a problem of alienation. Yet the wholesale transfer of ownership from private individuals to the state objectively fails to overcome this. This is now clearer than it was in 1891 or even 1981. Alienation can only be overcome through individual persons sensing that they are working for themselves, even as part of a common enterprise. Private ownership of the means of production is the default, unless the case can be made for, so for socialisation in the interests of the common good. This is the meaning of the principle of subsidiarity in this context. Yet, private ownership is subject to a social mortgage. The underlying principle is that material goods are private by use, but public by intention. The goods of this world are intended for the benefit of all. Yet that benefit is usually best achieved through personal responsibility, initiative and enterprise. The commitment to private enterprise appears politically rather conservative and has been so interpreted 
by economic theologians such as Michael Novak and his followers. Yet St. John Paul resists a simple affirmation of capitalism. If by capitalism is meant an economic system which recognises the fundamental and positive role of business, the market, private property and the resulting responsibility for the means of production, as well as free human creativity in the economic sector, then the answer is certainly in the affirmative, even though it would perhaps be more appropriate to speak of a business economy, a market economy, or simply a free economy. But if by capitalism is meant a system in which freedom in the economic sector is not circumscribed within a strong juridical framework, which places it at the service of human freedom in its totality, and which sees it as a particular aspect of that freedom, the core of which is ethical and religious, then the reply is certainly negative. And when it comes to the ownership of enterprise, St. John Paul spells out the difference even more clearly and with great moral force. And please forgive me if I quote at length, because there are no better words to say it in the time. So he writes, in the church's teaching, ownership has never been understood in a way that could constitute grounds for social conflict in labour. Property is acquired, first of all, through work, in order that it may serve work. This concerns in a special way ownership of the means of production. Isolating these means as a separate property in order to set it up in the form of capital in opposition to labour and even to practice exploitation of labour is contrary to the very nature of these means and their possession. They cannot be possessed against labour. They cannot even be possessed for possession's sake because the only legitimate title to their possession whether in the form of private ownership or in the form of public or collective ownership, is that they should serve labour. And thus, by serving labour, that they should make possible the achievement of the first principle of this order, namely the universal destination of goods <coughs> and the right to common use of them. From this point of view, the position of rigid capitalism continues to remain unacceptable, namely the position that defends the exclusive right to private ownership of the means of production as an untouchable dogma of economic life. The principle of respect for work demands that this right should undergo a constructive revision, both in theory and in practice. In fact, the purpose of a business firm is not simply to make a profit. 
but is to be found in its very existence as a community of persons who in various ways are endeavouring to satisfy their basic needs and who form a particular group at the service of the whole of society. A business cannot be considered solely or only as a society of capital goods. It is also a society of persons in which people participate in different ways and with specific responsibilities, whether they supply the necessary capital for the company's activities or take part in such activities through their labour. Ownership of the means of production, whether in industry or agriculture, is just and legitimate if it serves useful work. It becomes illegitimate, however, when it is not utilised or when it serves to impede the work of others in an effort to gain a profit which is not the result of the overall expansion of work and the wealth of society, but rather is the result of curbing them or of illicit exploitation, speculation or the breaking of solidarity among working people. Ownership of this kind has no justification and represents an abuse in the sight of God and man. That last sentence could hardly be stronger, especially if you consider the writer to be the vicar of Christ. And I wanted to quote him at length so you knew that it was him saying it, not me. So how do we act upon these principles in a democratic, secular society. Now, one response is that this is a mandate for the extension of cooperative and community ownership, particularly in the form of worker cooperatives along the lines of the Mondragon Group in the Spanish Basque Country, which was founded explicitly on these principles by a parish priest. Here, also, we can find a strong case for an end to demutualization and for positive measures in the other direction to encourage conversion from PLC to cooperatives and other forms of mutual and, indeed, to smaller-scale, private, family-owned companies. Yet such forms of voluntary association, however welcome they may be, cannot be imposed. They don't represent a feasible response to the question of the nature of the ownership and purpose of the large corporations that now dominate the economy and are unlikely ever to adopt an explicit social purpose. So, if we accept that the law can, and sometimes should change, how exactly should we change it? Inevitably, this means looking at legislation, which is normally a cure for insomnia. So I'll do my best to keep this lively. The concept of enlightened shareholder value was embedded in law through Section 172 of the 2006 Companies Act. Now, this section deals with the duties of a director. 
who is required to act in the way most likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members as a whole, and in doing so have regard, and I paraphrase, to the interests of stakeholders and the maintenance of high standards of business conduct, including acting fairly as between members of the company. The duty to have regard to the interests of stakeholders and follow best practice is what makes this enlightened. Yet the directors are perfectly entitled, once they have considered the interests of stakeholders, to ignore them. The correct reading of section 172 appears to be that it provides for the punishment of a reckless disregard of the interests of the stakeholders and any other matter that has damaged or may damage the company itself. The capsizing of the Herald of Free Enterprise and the Hatfield rail crash come to mind. But this duty of a director is owed to the company alone. It can be enforced only by the company or by one of its members bringing a case on behalf of the company. The stakeholders cannot bring a claim even if the company has shown reckless disregard for their interests. For any claim to succeed, it has to pass the same test, that it is likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members, not the benefit of the stakeholders. Our Foreign Secretary illustrated in February 2015 what he thinks this means for one major stakeholder. Boris Johnson claimed on LBC that the fiduciary duty of a director justifies the decision of Boots to relocate its head office from the UK to Switzerland to reduce taxation. Or as the Mirror put it, Boots' boss has duty to dodge UK taxes to make shareholders happy. Even Boris admitted that this was disappointing and appeared to suggest that public-spirited corporations should make voluntary contributions to the Treasury. <laughs> but note, however, that the duty of a director is to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members not simply its shareholders. And this is a legacy of the old idea of the company as an association before it became a thing. Shareholders are first and foremost members of the company. And you don't have to be a shareholder to be a member. Some of you will have heard of companies limited by guarantee, which don't have shareholders. And I'm suggesting that the concept of membership can provide the bridge between Catholic thought and current civil law. The first step is to clarify the confusion between the company and the enterprise, which is implicit in the phrase, the success of the company. The Blair Company Law Review used the words enterprise and company interchangeably. 
Lord Denning held that the duty of directors was to do their best to promote its business and to act with complete good faith towards it. The Blair Review recognised that the interests of shareholders and employees would clash in the case of the closure of a plant and wrote, an appeal to the interests of the company will not resolve the issue unless it is first decided whether the company is to be equated with its shareholders alone, enlightened shareholder value, or the shareholders plus other participants. Pluralism. Yet, the review then argues for legislation that clearly issued in Section 172 to ensure that directors recognise their obligation to have regard to the need where appropriate to build long-term and trusting relationships with employees, suppliers, customers and others as appropriate in order to secure the success of the enterprise over time. Now, Catholic thought is clear that workers are intrinsically members of the community of enterprise in which they participate by their work. The problem is that they are not members of the legal association, the company, which carries on conducts this enterprise. The legal construct does not reflect the community of persons engaged in this common enterprise. So the remedy I propose is for legislation to recognise workers as members of the company that employs them, overriding any contract between shareholders, as a basic statutory condition of the privilege of incorporation. In itself, statutory deemed worker membership would provide no rights to vote or to participate in management or profits. Yet it would require the directors to pursue the benefit of workers as part of members as a whole, while acting fairly as between members of the company, to use the words of section 172. Which broadly means not pursuing the benefit of either shareholders or workers at the expense of the other. And the interests of workers and long-term shareholders in the success of a particular enterprise are for the most part aligned in a manner that does not apply so easily to other stakeholders with whom there is greater scope for conflicts of interest. Both employees and long-term shareholders can benefit from the success of the enterprise without doing so at the expense of the other. And deemed worker membership would also provide a legal basis for workers to challenge the director's interpretation or performance of their duties under Section 172, which is currently unenforceable. But what about the other stakeholders? Catholic theology does not see them as members of the community of enterprise in the same way as workers. But here, the concept of the common good is important, which brings me to my second legislative proposal, 
to make parent companies liable for the obligations of their subsidiary companies. Some of you will remember the film Erin Brockovich, played by Julia Roberts, shown here alongside the real Erin. In the story, which is said to be true, a utility company is found guilty of allowing carcinogenic material to leak into groundwater. And during the litigation, it becomes clear that the parent company, which has the money to meet the damages claims, has no direct liability for the pollution caused by its operating subsidiary. Only when it's shown, as a matter of high drama, that the parent company knew about the pollution could it be sued as a matter of tort law. Otherwise, even if the subsidiary had been found guilty, the parent would not be liable. Now, limited liability was originally introduced in 1855 in the UK to protect personal shareholders from ruin as a result of unforeseen circumstances. Once again, the moral conception of the company as a community of human persons is helpful. The personality of a corporation is a purely legal construct, and there is no inherent reason to accord to a corporation the privileges that one may allow to a human being. And this was the point at issue in the recent United States Supreme Court case, so-called Citizens United case, about free speech. The case against parent company limited liability follows from its strategic use to shirk responsibility to stakeholders. The success of the enterprise, in a very narrow sense, can be enhanced by passing risks without informed consent to other stakeholders, including not only the employees of subsidiaries, but also suppliers, customers, local communities, and the natural environment. Now, making parent companies liable for their subsidiaries might well lead to the breakup of some large groups where this brought the scale of the legal form into line with that of the underlying community of enterprise, surely this would be welcome. So to recap at this point. Yes, the purpose of a company is to make money, but to do so through the work of a community of human persons engaged in a business enterprise to provide useful goods and services for society as a whole and thereby earn income for themselves. The legal structure of the modern company and corporate group is a poor reflection of this community of enterprise. The law needs to recognise that workers are intrinsically members of that community. And that limited liability was never intended to allow the building of firewalls within that community in order to enhance shareholder value. Statutory worker membership would allow directors to pursue the success of the enterprise. Parent company liability would help to ensure that directors take seriously, really seriously, 
the interests of stakeholders. Now, I suggest that these two changes in the law are necessary if companies are to move beyond the pursuit of shareholder value. It's clear that these changes are not sufficient. Although the law can provide a formal norm in this area, the blueprint for better business is quite right that we also need a change in culture and practice. But I would argue that a still further legal change is necessary, without which the best-intentioned board will find itself unable to pursue anything other than shareholder value. That indeed was the fate of ICI, with whom we began. I mean the market for corporate control, the takeover business. The Blair Review recognised that one of the most important influences on the behaviour of directors and members is the market in corporate control, unquote. This cannot be neglected when considering directors' duties and corporate purpose. The surest way for directors to lose their jobs is a hostile takeover, but leaving their personal interest aside, as one must, the UK legal framework and the culture and practice of the city prohibits directors from blocking a hostile bid by one of the many devices common enough in the US. The city regards as absolute the sovereignty of shareholders over the disposal of what they consider to be their exclusive property. And this is subject only to a limited understanding of the public interest in terms of national security and competition policy. It's only to be expected that the interests of shareholders will rank paramount in the minds of the directors of a public company as they consider their duties under Section 172. This factor has become ever stronger as technology has made equity markets more and more liquid, shareholding periods shorter and shorter, and hedge funds more and more powerful. The share register can change dramatically within days of the initial offer and become dominated by those with a purely short-term financial interest. Now this, this dogma of the absolute property rights of shareholders must be regarded, and you saw the quote earlier, as radically incompatible with Catholic thought since it takes no account of the community of persons engaged in the business enterprise, nor of the wider community that it serves. Recall, capital should not be set up in opposition to labour. Capital cannot be possessed against labour or possessed for its own sake. The legitimacy of private ownership of the means of production is contingent on their being put at the service of labour, no legitimate decision can be made which considers only the interests of shareholders. But there is, in my view, no prospect of a sustainable commitment by a public company to a corporate purpose other than shareholder value without the prohibition of the hostile takeover. This is another precondition of change. 
alongside the recognition of workers as members. For directors to be able to pursue the success of the enterprise for which they are responsible, as opposed to pursuing the interests of shareholders, they must have the discretion to make an impartial judgment in the terms of Section 172. Thus, any takeover offer should, at the very least, require the unreserved approval of the board of directors. Even that's not enough, because there is a conflict of interest between the shareholders and the enterprise itself. Boards may recommend a takeover in the interests of shareholders without outside pressure. They may do so even if a takeover is not in the interests of the company's continuing business enterprise. This implies that the minimal rights of the worker member should include the approval of any takeover recommended by the board. Such approval to be sought in the form of a majority vote by ballot in a similar fashion to a shareholder resolution. The unqualified right of shareholders to remove the directors would also need to be tempered by the approval of the worker members. There's a secondary but strong case that the shareholder vote on takeovers and removal of the board should be limited to long-term shareholders, defined uh, as, for example, as by the carpetbagger defences of building societies. But there are occasions when workers will approve a takeover, even if this involves redundancies for some or all of them. A struggling business has few options, and its workers usually understand this better than anyone. A merger with a larger business may make perfectly good strategic sense. The workers may even approve the closure of a viable enterprise when an offer is too good to refuse, provided that an appropriate share of the benefit flows to them. With marketing corporate control brought to heel in the above fashion, then I think there is some chance of the emergence of a different understanding of corporate purpose. However, against me, the defenders of the marketing corporate control will argue that without the discipline of the threat of a hostile takeover, boards of directors become in practice unaccountable. And that's the point of Mr. Gecko's infamous greed is good speech. It is certainly true that alternative channels for corporate governance would need strengthening and developing, including both the engagement of long-term shareholders and the representation of workers, which is where the Prime Minister's suggestion comes in and makes sense. I suggest the concept of statutory worker membership adds a new ingredient to the debate over worker representation. Worker membership provides legal recognition of the human association which produces the goods and services and serves the customers and wider society. Worker membership provides grounds for participation in governance 
in terms of the well-established legal principles of association. Once you've got membership, from that follows accountability, including general meetings, ballots, the election of directors, accounts, reporting, all the rest. But there's a caution here too. Without a change in corporate purpose, without the necessary legal changes I have set out, worker directors will find their position untenable. The proposition cannot succeed in isolation. And I do not think the case that I've made here can be made for consumer directors. The Catholic understanding of the community of enterprise is based on its theology of human work. Consumers are served by that community, but they're not members of it in the same way, since they do not participate by their labour. So the case for membership of the board needs to go beyond stakeholder theory to something more profound. Now, I don't know if the Prime Minister fully appreciates the implications of her suggestion. I hope she does. On a previous occasion, when the interests of property were asserted over and against those of Labour, her predecessor, Winston Churchill, wrote, two months before returning Britain to the gold standard in 1925 against his better judgment, that he would rather see finance less proud and industry more content. In the aftermath of the subsequent general strike, he came to regret his decision to return to gold. Sir Winston Churchill was not strong enough to withstand the city in 1925. How will Theresa May fare? Nearly a century later, and with global financial capitalism more powerful than ever. These proposals are going to appear to some too radical, to others too conservative. Yet I suggest they represent a feasible, incremental route towards a more inclusive capitalism, if we want it. Undoubtedly, they represent a shift in the balance of power, away from finance, towards industry. The city will not like it. But the economic and, dare I say, political and moral regeneration of this country depends upon it, now more than ever. Thank you.